0: Good morning church, my name is Bella Martinez and I'm a covenant partner here at FPC. We continue worship by studying the prophet of Haggai. Haggai was a prophet at 520 to 516 BC, the voice of God sent to move the people of God into action. Through studying this minor prophet, we will discover major truths about God's grace, the power of his word and spirit, and the purposes he has planned for his people. Hear the word of the Lord. All the flesh is grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the fields. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: Thank you, Bella. Greetings, everyone. What? What? <laughs> let's try. Let's try that again. Greetings, everyone. Greetings. That's a little more like it. I'm gonna close this door. I'm afraid an attacker is gonna come and tackle me. So. That's just my paranoia there, all right? Welcome to Mitchell's World. Um, I am very excited to see you this morning uh, for more reasons than one. Uh, First of all, you showed up, right? Uh, You didn't leave like the kids did. Um, But seriously, uh, last Sunday, uh, we were able to worship with one of the churches that our congregation has helped plant. Uh, It was like the coolest venue in the world to have a church service. It's in a building where the bottom floor is a bar, second floor is a bowling alley, third floor is a ballroom where they literally have a stained glass window of Bacchus, who's the god of wine, and we're worshiping with this church that didn't exist a year ago that God has allowed us to help plant in one of the coolest places to see the new wine of the gospel bursting forth. And I'll be honest... It was so cool, I was a little worried that no one would come back here. So I'm grateful that you're here. We've got stained glass windows too, right? So, uh, also, I'm just really grateful uh, just for the vision and the burden that God's given our congregation uh, just to participate in his work. And we're going to celebrate that today. But to celebrate his work of church planning, uh, we've, by God's grace, we've been able to help three different churches start this year. Our goal as a congregation, everybody needs to be involved, is to help 30 church plants by 2030. And be praying. We have uh, somebody that we've commissioned as a church planter next year, Alex Solorio. So be praying for him and encouraging him and stay tuned for amazing ways that you can participate. Uh, Lots of other ways that we've been participating in God's work around the world. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to bring greetings to you. I'm very excited. To bring you greetings from a house church in North Africa. We were able on our Spanish, uh, Southern Spain mission trip, we've we've been able to send people to five countries this this summer. Um, And I was able to go to Southern Spain and and then with Don and Mary and Ryan, we flew down to a North African country. We worked with some house church leaders in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, uh, where to talk about Jesus in the word, they had to close every window. And make sure literally there's no spies. Uh, To have time with them was one of the richest experiences of my faith in life. And they wanted me to send you their greetings, to thank you for your prayers and uh, support financially. But also, uh, you might not know this, but our Vacation Bible School made crafts for that house church in North Africa. And when we gave them the crafts, we translated it to Arabic and in English, there were literal tears uh, in the congregation. It was really beautiful. And so I bring you greetings from there. As we study this summer in the month of July, we're just going sermon by sermon. And this week, I, I don't want to bore you. I know you probably had your quiet time in the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, so this is duplication for most of you, but for... Those of y'all who haven't been memorizing the book of Haggai, we're going to look at Haggai today. Next week, 1102, we'll be back in Westminster Hall, Lord willing. I've learned not to say that too confidently. Uh, Lord willing. Uh, And we're going to be looking at Luke uh, 11 and how the resurrection reframes reality. But today, I have a real burden. Haggai has been used by the Lord to, to stir my heart a lot. Uh, You'll see, I think a lot of y'all got handed, um, the hope is we just printed a few of these, just an example, an excerpt of our richly dwelling. Uh, Lisa and I do this, my wife and I, our goal is to go through the Bible chapter by chapter. Uh, We're about halfway through and we write meditations on every chapter with study questions and key verses or whatever. We love doing it. Uh, But as I was praying for you all in this sermon, I just wanted to print out a couple of examples. Uh, from Haggai, Haggai 1 and 2, and on the back of this, you'll see space for notes today. Our heart really is that the word of God will dwell in you richly, to use Paul's word to Colossians church, uh, but so that you might richly dwell in God's word. And so please, please take advantage of that. This morning, uh, the sermon's entitled, uh, Hope for Hard Times. And all of us are going through hard times or know someone who's going through hard times, and the temptation is for us to hear a title like that in times like this and to say, I'm here to have hope, and we are in Christ. But the hope for hard times that we're going to focus on from Haggai actually is God's plan, his purpose through you if you're a Christian. This is more of inspiration and application of the gospel of how you can be hope in hard times for a world that is ruined by the fall and where there is ruin all around us. God is a God of restoration. In his plan, his priority is for his people to be his agents of restoration, his ministers of reconciliation, his ambassadors of love in a world to show love and to be light. So before we unpack the word of the Lord, will you please join me in going to the Lord of the word and asking for his grace? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to sit under the authority of your word. We know, Lord, that prophets were sent by you to sting to sting our conscience. We ask, Lord, that your salvation that's provided through the gospel will be a salve to our souls and that your spirit will move us from stinging to singing. Lord, we desperately need you. And we ask that your spirit would meet us freshly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of Habakkuk. Overview of the book. We're not going to go too deep. You'll see that actually the outline that you have on the back doesn't necessarily match the meditations in the booklet. Uh, Haggai is broken down neatly, sent by God uh, in about 520 uh, B.C. before Christ came, and and he was sent to move the people of God to do the work of God. And he came, his tool was the Word of God, the Spirit of God used in amazingly powerful ways. And, And you can read the book and see that there's four neat parts. All of them begin with the Word of the Lord came to Haggai. And so he gives four sermons that God uses His Word by the power of His Spirit to move them back into God's priorities, to really awaken them from their complacency. Here's what I mean about complacency. Uh, God's people had returned from exile in about 538 BC. They had been freed by Cyrus, king of Persia. And if you read Ezra chapter one, verse one, you'll see that the specific text that God gives, the burden that God gives is that they are to go back and rebuild the temple. And so 50,000 people, historical records show, came back from exile and into Jerusalem. And Haggai comes in 520, 18 years later. They had had the word of God as a command. They had had the resources of God given through the pagan emperor of Persia, a guy named Cyrus, and they had done nothing. In fact, they had used the prosperity, the, the, the resources that had come by God through Cyrus for their own personal prosperity. And so Haggai is sent to move them, to move them into action. And you'll see, I think, quickly the contemporary application that God has for his church today. The the people were complacent. First look at verse one. You see in the second year of Darius, that gives us the 520 date. And if you look at Ezra one, you'll see that Cyrus had freed them. So this is 18 years later and a whole different leader. I mean, they had been complacent, but look at how complacent they had been. The people say this, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. All right. Now, what excuses do we have for not doing the work of God? He has done more than free us from exile. He has redeemed us from judgment. He took the wrath we deserve for our sins on the cross. And Christ himself, who was God, was sent into exile for for our sins. You remember what he said from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was sent in exile so we could be brought near, approaching God's throne of grace, redeemed by his blood to live for his glory. And just like the original audience that said, time has not yet come for us to rebuild the house of God. After 18 years of making excuses, so we too in our lives make excuses for why we can't participate in God's work of redemptive restoration And that's an important point of identification: the complacency. But it isn't just a complacency; uh, but it is a comfort that focuses on their own prosperity. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, verse four. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The Hebrew word for paneled, it literally means luxurious, well-made, fancy, fancy houses. But they were using more than likely the resources that Cyrus had lavished upon them to rebuild the temple, to build for themselves luxurious, fancy homes. Now, I told you this is going to sting a little bit. The same word for paneled, is used in 1 Kings 6-9 when Solomon is building the house of God. You see, the self-focus of the returned exiles had drowned out their purpose. They were spiritually asleep. And the picture is clear. After God had worked, after God had forgiven, after God had returned them, After God had provided for them, they chose to relax in the comfort and ease of God's blessings, using it for themselves. And in this context, out of God's grace, he sends his word. He sends a prophet. Now you say, Mitchell, how is that grace? Let me explain to you. If I were your God and you treated me like that, I would squash you and remove you and replace you. But God is faithful. He's covenant committed to his people. His steadfast love is not based on your performance or my performance, but his performance and his character, what he has done. And in his grace, he sends his word that he's pleased to use by the power of his spirit so that we might awaken from our slumber and move from the comfort of this world that we think is comfortable, to find the true comfort of the unconditional love of our God for us. But they weren't just complacent and comfortable, they were also calloused. Look at verse six, and you can identify with this, I know I can, I mean look, we're Western Christians, we live in the wealthiest place in the world, in the wealthiest period of history. Every one of us does. We have more resources at our hands, more resources, anyone, anywhere of all time. You can identify with the callousness in verse four. He says to them, uh, verse five, therefore says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says, you've sown much, but you've harvested little. You ever felt like that? You work and you work and you toil, but you just don't get any fruit from your labor. He says, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Can you identify with that? Like looking to things of this world to satisfy the thirsting longings of your soul and you're still wanting? I know I can. He says, look, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns his wages does so just to put them in a pocket, a bag with holes. You see this callousness that comes when the futility that we feel when uh, that we put our focus on the personal prosperity of this world, thinking that it can satisfy. It can't. This is an ancient text that reflects a, a, a human truth. We're tempted to look at the successful people of our culture and just maybe say this is an example of the American dream that's crashed upon the rocks of reality. I mean, we hear stories like Deion Sanders. He's the coach of Jackson State University, former uh, standout for the Dallas Cowboys, all right? And you'll remember if you've heard his testimony, after he won his first Super Bowl, he said it was one of the most empty moments of his life, if not the most empty moment of his life. Everything he had worked for everything he had stroven for, everything he had sacrificed for, he accomplished and he felt empty. That was actually the catalyst that God used to bring him to Christ. But we see it in musicians all the time too. They get to the pinnacle of the stage that they want to be on and they're completely addicted to drugs, totally lonely and depressed and isolated, having everything they've always worked for and going, "Is this it?" I, I see it with business men and women all the time, the career path that we set out. And if I can just get to the next level, if I can just get to the next salary place, if I can just get this next promotion, this next com- then then I'll be satisfied and happy, right? How much is enough? Just 50 more thousand dollars. That's never enough, when that's always your answer. But you know, this isn't the American dream that has crashed on the rocks of reality. This isn't the Dickens, Charles Dickens, you know, uh, story of a Christmas carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. You know that story, Ebenezer Scrooge. He was a wealthy businessman. He was a successful businessman, right? But he was grumpy and isolated and lonely, and he loved his money so much he just kept it for himself. Dickens wrote about Ebenezer Scrooge. This isn't that. This is the condition of the human heart. You can go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I encourage you to read it later. When Solomon recounts the vanity of life, he had all the wealth he wanted, All the women he wanted, all the work he wanted to accomplish, all the wisdom in the world, the works that he had made in his country were unparalleled. And he said it was a vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. You see, when we prioritize personal prosperity, we will be left empty and wanting every single time. So the question, are God's people going to prioritize personal prosperity or... Are we going to allow the word of God to be used by the Spirit of God to awaken us for the priorities of God to participate in His work of redemptive restoration? You know Ebenezer Scrooge, he had his heart changed by the Spirit of Christmas, and that next day he was all Jennifer. Gener- he was all Jennifer, not this sermon. <laughs> he was generous, and he helped Tiny Tim. And he cared for the poor, and he was a new free man, and though he had had all the money he wanted, for the first time in his life, he found himself full, grateful, excited to be alive. More than the spirit of Christmas, we have the spirit of God that works through his word and through his work. And let me tell you, history is littered Our lives, you'll hear in a second, are littered with men and women who have just said, I'm going to consider my ways. I'm going to turn from the prosperity as a priority of this world, and I'm going to surrender myself to the unconditional love of Jesus. Scripturally, we see it in Zacchaeus, very successful businessman, tied to the most powerful empire of his day, the Roman Empire, collected taxes for him. But when he met Jesus and he had this secure identity as a son of Abraham, what's the first thing that he did? The first thing he did was to give generously to the poor and to pay retribution four times what he had stolen. You see, the gospel, it changes our hearts. And I have multiple examples from the New Testament But I just want to read to you, in our Sunday school class, we spent time talking about um, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I just want to read to you why this is important for us and why I'm burdened to tell you. 1 Timothy 6 should be on our screen, verses 6 uh, to 10 and 17 and 18. Godliness with content is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, And folks, if you are in America at this time in history, you are rich. So do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, says Paul, but on God, who richly provides with us everything to enjoy. Verse 18, the rich are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The gospel alone is what gives us contentedness, gratitude for God's grace and his extravagant generosity for us in Christ. And we have the opportunity to overflow with that love and life and generosity in the world where he's put us. Now, the prophet, when he comes, you heard repeated twice in verse 5 and verse 7 it's actually repeated four times throughout the book, is this one phrase, consider your ways. And consider your ways is an imperative. It should have an exclamation point. Consider your ways. There's urgency of immediate application that we examine our hearts. It it literally means set your heart on your way, on the way you're walking. Set your heart on it. And the wisdom literature of the Old Testament it talks about the heart as like the core of who we are. Body, b- body, mind, spirit, soul, all of it comes together in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, the heart is the wellspring of life. And the prophet is saying, set your heart on your ways. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Consider your ways. Consider where you're putting your hope. Consider what works you are participating in. Consider your ways, says the prophet. And it's a gift of grace because God gives people an opportunity to find true restoration. Is he speaking in tongues? No, I think he's just tired. God gives his people to find true restoration to turn from those things that are just futile and frustrating so that we can be full in abundant life, fruitful in how he's designed us to be, to set our heart and our hope on him in the gospel so that we can be hope in the light and love that he has called us for in this world. Consider your ways that we can recognize the futility of the selfishness and move into the fruitfulness of his design. Okay, that's a sting. We need to get to the singing, don't we? The purpose of God since creation. The temple needed to be rebuilt because God's desire and his design from the beginning is personal relationship with his people. In Genesis chapter one and two, God walked with his creatures in the garden. He spoke, they listened, they spoke, he listened. There was intimate relationship. But the rebellion of Adam and Eve, their sin separated a holy God from his people, his creatures. Isaiah 59.2 says it explicitly. But God's passionate pursuit of his people is seen in the wilderness, the tabernacle, in the promised land, the temple, And most vividly in the second period, the second temple period that Haggai was working about, most vividly in Jesus Christ, who John 1.14 says that he's the glory of God that came in tabernacle, that he dwelled among us. This is God's purpose, dwelling with people. But it's also God's creation purpose for his people, because if we go to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, the fountainhead of God's people, Father Abraham had many sons, I'm one of them, so are you. All right? I'll use a kid's song. He chose Abraham for a purpose. You can read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and he says, I have chosen you that, to bless you that you might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's through Abraham the lineage of Jesus comes. And all those who belong to Jesus and who, who are united in Jesus are called to those purposes, to be a blessing to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Just to put it crystal clear, the first words of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, is about Jesus, the son of Abraham. Identity as God's people, purposes of God's people, reinforced by the last words of Matthew. Go into the world And make disciples of all nations to continue that purpose that we find a culmination in revelation. When we study the end of the Bible, places like revelation five, revelation seven, revelation 21 and 22, we see the culmination of intimate relationship between God and his people in that purpose brought to fruition with every tribe, tongue and nation brought together. And so the opportunity that we have in participating in God's work is to grab his creational design for the world to restore his presence, but also for his people to be ambassadors of his blessing in this broken world. And this is the purpose that we have. God wants to be with you, his people, but God wants to use you, his people. And this is how we come to the last point, the power of the gospel for all eternity. You and I have an opportunity to store up treasures in heaven. And that's a place where moth and rust, it can't destroy. That what you do now in the name of Jesus, in being generous, is eternal for the glory of Jesus. Uh, the power of the gospel comes by faith, says Paul in Romans 1.17. And his spirit, his ultimate presence, comes to live inside of his people when we understand the, 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 the promise, the good news, John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. And we become a child of God, a secure child of God. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1-2. If you want to memorize a verse this summer, take two, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul says, be imitators of God. As dearly loved children, walk in love as he has loved you by giving himself for you. In fact, when Paul summarizes the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it's printed at the bottom of your notes, he uses economic terms. That though he was rich, he, Jesus became poor so that you might become rich. Mm-hmm. It's a summary of where we see in places like Philippians 2, uh, when Paul describes Jesus as being in the form of God, had the riches of heaven, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? So that people like me who prioritize the idols of comfort in this world, people like me who prioritize personal prosperity, people like me who make plans that are more in line with the materialistic idols of my world then in line with my king. People like me can find forgiveness, that I can consider my ways. Now look, that invitation's for me, and if you know me, you know I need it. Bad, I need grace. All of us do. And all of you know something else too. You know people or places that need Restoration. Just like God had commanded his people to rebuild the second temple so his presence could be restored, so that his purposes could go forward, so too in the New Testament. The New Testament church is commissioned to go out, to live in loss for others' gain, to die to ourselves so that others can live, to live distinctly as salt and light in a dark in a dying world. And I don't need to put a name in your heart, you know someone who needs to know restoration. I don't need to give you a place of reconciliation, of someone you need to forgive for no reason, of a family relationship you need to mend, not by expecting them to come to their senses, but you considering yourself, considering your ways, And forgiving as you've been forgiven. You know parts of your neighborhood that need love. Parts of our city that need light. You know it. I don't even need to tell you about it. I want to encourage you. Let the Spirit of God stir your heart. And consider your ways. And more than that, I want to inspire you. Because our first pres family, we are some of the most generous people I have ever heard of or encountered. I'm telling you, it is inspiring to me. And I don't have time to give you story after story after story, but I want to give you a few examples. Can I do that? Last week we worshipped with a church plant that we have no business helping start. It's younger, it's cooler. It's also downtown, but we are committed to see people come to Christ. And we have a strategic plan where we are gonna divest our assets to see kingdom assets grow, and it's costly. We're gonna send out someone we love, like a brother and a son, and we're gonna do everything we can to support him. But more than that, you know, the, the refugee crisis that's coming out of Ukraine you know, this congregation has given $100,000 to two different organizations to help over there, sending trips to go surf to, what? The Uvalde crisis, the utter tragedy that happened over there. There's a lot of people sending money. Our church has sent a lot of money, over $65,000 to date, with 24,5,000 dollars earmarked more, but we haven't just sent it over there for the government to use at their whim. We've actually supported a ministry on the ground and helped fund them to hire a staff person that can stay in love and care. And That's y'all. That's what y'all are doing. Our church sent out five to five different countries mission teams this year, just generously and everywhere, they went, they were scattering seeds of hope and love and receiving a lot, and I hope that you hear the testimonies next month. We're going to have some story and share time in October more so, but it's ridiculous, radical generosity. It's surprising generosity. One of the biggest crises in our county, in our country, is the foster care crisis. We have had the opportunity uh, to help start The most effective foster care ministry in our area. But even yesterday, we had more than 20, 30 volunteers come and serve more than 70 families who didn't have the resources for their kids' school supplies. Over 200 kids came through giving a Saturday morning. Who does that? Our church family. Grandparents raising grandkids throughout the city. We've had opportunities. There's so 60,000 grandparents raising grandkids that don't get state funding. Our congregation has helped some, a few. They don't even have AC. Could you imagine? They don't have money to fix it. Our congregation's helped fund several houses, including one that was associated with our, our teen mom ministry. Can you imagine three generations of women living in a house? the Youngest of which two are under the age of like six and they didn't have AC. It's unreal. Our people see that need and they fill it. Do you know that one of our ministry partners on the east side, they raise money, Young Life East, They want to take kids to camp, under-resourced, none of them can afford to go to camp. They had like 15 more sign up than they were ready for. I'm so sorry, 15. How in the world are they gonna get money for those kids to go to camp? This church said we'll cover it. Who does that? People who understand the gospel, your family, It's this church, my family, this isn't virtue signaling. This is understanding that there's a greater story than Cinderella's riches, rags to riches. There's a greater story than the materialism of of our world. That story is the gospel. That story is that we have a king. Who left riches and took on rags so that we could become rich in His grace to show His love. In the gift of God's Word, to be used by God's Spirit, is that we can consider our ways and to turn from the prioritization prioritization of our personal prosperity and to turn to participation in His work of redemptive restoration. We don't have to have excuses anymore. We don't have to wait till we get more. We don't have to wait till we have more time. We don't have to wait till it's a different season of life. We have the Holy Spirit as God's people. We have a secure identity as God's children in his family. We have a clear commission. And friends, the headlines of our world, they're not gonna get a lot better anytime soon. But the headlines of heaven, they say we have a king on a throne who's making all things new. And he wants to use you to do it. Let's let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Thank you for your word and your work. Lord, you have grace for a sinner like me. You're so good. I'm moved deeply by the love that this congregation has. So grateful to be a part of a family like this. We just ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would stir us further, that we would truly discover the reality of your kingdom. It's more blessed to give than receive. That when we lose our life in that, we will find it. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. For the seeds that you've allowed us to sow and those that you will allow us to sow, we pray for a harvest of righteousness. Protect the seed from birds and weeds that love to come in. Protect your flock, from the thief that would love to sneak in and kill and destroy. Even telling people in here right now that they have nothing to offer. What a lie. What a lie. Lord, now is the time to rebuild and restore. Would you use us to that end? We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please stand and let's respond to God's word through worshiping our living God.